Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. My name is Yehuda Kurtzer. I'm president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording here on June 3rd, 2020. We're recording in the middle of an unbelievably dramatic, tragic, and difficult American moment in the midst of the worst global pandemic we've had in a century, uh, an explosion of uh, rioting, protest, violence, prompted most recently by the killing by a police officer on May 25th in 2020 of George Floyd, of blessed memory, eight minutes and 46 seconds with footage of watching police uh, arrest uh, a black man and uh, and kill him in the process. And since then, uh, it's been hard to think about or focus on anything else. And I'm really excited, really honored and grateful uh, to two friends and colleagues for joining me today on this podcast to help us think about a whole bunch of questions that are raised for Jews, Jewish identity, Jewish community, for Jews as Americans right now. So let me ask you to introduce yourself. Thanks, Yehuda, for having this conversation and for inviting me to participate. I'm Gina Green, most recently formerly of Ben the Ark Jewish Action, where I was chief strategy officer for um, two years. I'm now taking the summer a little bit off and taking a little bit of a break and spending a lot of time um, with my kids and doing some board work. I'm on the board of the, of the Jews of Color Initiative, as well as the leadership team of the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable. And right now, using my voice in the most effective way that I can. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here with all of you, Gina. It's, it's also a pleasure to share this space with you during this moment. Um, my name is Isaiah Rothstein. Um, I was born and raised in the Jewish community of Muncie, New York. Uh, to a mixed-race Orthodox family. I currently live in Harlem, and I serve as rabbi-in-residence at Chazon, the Jewish Lab for Sustainability. Great. I'll express my gratitude. I know all of the demands that are on your time, on your emotional energy, both of you right now, in the positions of leadership that you hold. Gina, you were modest in describing your professional affiliations, but you sit on a whole bunch of boards, and you're shaping a whole bunch of conversations. Isaiah, I know you're also, in addition to your work, a musician and a, and a producer of, of music and culture. So I know that you're discerning also about how you use your voice and to which organizations you lend it. So I'm grateful that um, that we at Hartman can uh, convene some of this conversation today. I actually want to start with some of your own words, because uh, both of you have been outspoken the last few days and weeks in Jewish media. I want to get to the whole question a little later on of who speaks in Jewish media with and for Jews of color. There's been a whole eruption in the last month, really, uh, weird timing around the whole question of who are Jews of color in America, how many Jews of color are there, and who gets to speak for them. So let me start with your own words. Gina, you said in the Jewish Journal yesterday, quote, I think about how lobsters molt, like they basically lose their exoskeleton, and it's a really painful process of basically getting a new body. That's what it feels like America is going through right now. There's a painful, difficult process by which we are making ourselves something new, and that, to me, is the American promise that we've been working towards for hundreds of years. So I guess the place I want to start with both of you is I'm very taken, partly as a dispositional and a professional optimist, and partly because of my own American Jewish story, which, and we don't all have the same American Jewish stories, um, but I'm taken by the language that you use of the American promise, the belief that there is something American that's possible, and that the and, and this is, I guess, my interpretation of your words. You could tell me if I get it right, Gina, that when we see the types of failures that we see around racial justice and racial inequality, police brutality, et cetera, that that is a failure of a promise as opposed to something that is fundamentally broken about the American project to begin with. So that's where I want to start. Uh, are we in a moment of divergence from what America is, or are we getting a kind of image of what America has been all along? 
That's a really great question. Um, I think it's really hard to separate out, actually, these two notions of what we have been and what we can possibly become. Because I'm reading right now an incredible book, um, actually, with gratitude to Shalom Hartman and the Lippmann Canfer um, Foundation for Living Torah, this book by Danielle Allen, um, Our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality. It's an incredible book. You, you know, it's dense, it's, it's deep, it's philosophical, but reading it at this moment in time has me feeling more so than ever that us dismantling the system of racism that we have built this country on is actually the fulfillment of the promise. And that creating the space that our founders created, I mean, some of the language they used so poetic and in many ways describing the moment that we're actually in, when the government has ceased to support and to acknowledge and to respect the people, then it's time for the people to fundamentally change the government. And so I feel like we're in this moment where we have realized that even though there are elements of the system that work, listen, I have plenty of friends on the left whom I would consider very radical. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I think I would consider myself somewhat moderate, although I think other people would say that I'm radical. But I think that there's like a time that we're in right now where we've recognized that the system itself isn't, at least I believe, the system itself isn't flawed. There's a lot of goodness in American jurisprudence, right? That didn't come from the founding fathers. It actually came from Yisro and Moshe, right? Like the system, judges and, and appellate courts and right district courts, right? That is old. That is That predates Benjamin Franklin. And that can still work. But in order for that to work, we have to remove the racist underpinnings on which that particular system was built in this country. And that to me feels like where we're at right now. Great. So I wanted to, I do want to come back to some of the question of personal narrative as it informs this, where we come from and what stories we tell. What about you, Isaiah? How are you sitting with this, um, this question of the rooted optimism? I mean, that's part of Danielle Allen's argument. This is a kind of a rooted optimism about the American project, even as it's written by wealthy white slave owning men. And now we're talking about claiming that narrative and using it to actually make America what it is supposed to be. Um, where are you sitting, Isaiah, on that kind of nexus between optimism about the possibility of this project and pessimism about its presentation? Whew. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I think with what's going on in the world, and also with just everything that we've been seeing, with you know, the turning of the 21st century, we know that the American landscape has become more volatile in certain ways and that there are different trends. And so there's concern about the American democratic landscape with or without this particular urgency that we are bringing. And I think race, we know, is the foundations in many ways of this country. I mean, just to even say that in 1850, there were over 20 million legal slaves in North America, in this, in this America. And I think the hope, like holding the tension of, what is yet to come? Like, with that being said, there to date, I'm pretty sure, I mean, just by the nature of population, there have never been more white people fighting for racial justice in American history, side by side. And so how do we hold that reality? I think, I think we, need to, we need to listen and we need to take a pause, um, you know, to Gina's point about dismantling the structures of racism in America. Um, you know, it's not a new feeling for people of color. It's not today. It's not just in Trump's America. It's not, you know, it's not just for me in this moment or for my parents. It's been for generations 
my parents, my parents, 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 parents have had this urgency. And so holding um, this tension, I think, and hope, uh, particularly in this moment for like the American promise or the American dream, you know, it was only 2008 where we got the first flimsy apology for for Jim Crow and for slavery in America. I think it was uh, Congressman Stephen Cohen who stood and said that the building I'm declaring this apology in was built by slaves. And, and he was also saying that it, 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 his, he, quote, he closes that apology by saying that, that in many ways, America and the greatness of America is that we're able to confront our past. And, and that when we said all men were created equal, we were talking about white men. And we weren't talking about women and we were talking about other people of color. And even in the 1920s, when we said that, okay, now women can vote, we weren't talking about black women and we weren't talking about, you know, and not just into the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, but there were, you know, we know that even now there are people who are trying to prevent people of color from voting or filling out the census. So this is messy, but I do think that our country is fit. We have the muscles, we have the history, we have the legacy. And as Gina's pointing out, that in many ways our democracy is, is based on the Ten Commandments, it's based on the Mosaic Law. We know that there are pictures of Moses and the tablets in the Capitol building on the ceiling. And there's like all these different places. So there's, there's so much there that I think we are holding a tremendous legacy and we are in a pivotal moment. We are in this precipice for um, American history, as Eric Ward uh, wrote just recently. Like, I think we are. And I mean, I think we have the ability. You know, Dr. King and, and Malcolm X, even at the end of their lives, they believe deeply in coalition yeah. um, with white people and partnership. Um, and people are just too afraid to partner and to actually cross into a different lane, you know, to listen. One of the things that um, that you're surfacing that I'm thinking about personally and and uh, and trying to think about with respect to the Jewish community is, you know, when you use the language and again, Gene, in your own words, when you spoke to JTA uh, this past week and wrote this piece about racism as an American epidemic for 400 years, uh, both of you are lifelong committed advocates for racial justice in both what I would say, obviously, is self-interest, but also national, communal and collective interest. And in a moment like this, it's like, Isaiah, to your point, okay, now there's there's opportunity for coalition because other people are paying attention. And there's an urgency of kind of sustaining the momentum that comes with the fact that people are paying attention and moving right now. But you can almost anticipate on the horizon when your allies are going to get bored and say, okay, well, now that's not the issue right now. Like, okay, right. I know I have to care about this right now. You know, it's like uh, using the language of the Mishnah. When a dead body is lying before you, it creates a certain set of obligations before you. And then the nature of life is that there's a whole bunch, like is a dead body before you. The obligations of life wind up shifting you elsewhere. And, I, and, and I'm, trying to, I'm trying to wrap my head around, in order to do what you're talking about, around um, really achieving the American promise, this is not an episode, an incident, or a concern. This is actually so deeply rooted and so deeply foundational in the story. How do we create a deeper attention span? And Isaiah and I were kind of pregaming this before. How do you get people invested in something that they don't necessarily see as being, quote-unquote, their issue? Hmm. I think part of what has happened in the last 10 days, the last five years, the last 30 years, and but especially as we've come to this flashpoint, is that I think more white people and more white Jews have actually begun to really see 
and feel how our all of our liberation is tied up with one another. Like we actually can't have a United States that works for everybody if it doesn't work for the least of us and that it's fundamentally not working for many of us. And if we don't do something now, it's going to be fundamentally not working for most of America as people of color become the majority in the, in the coming decades. And I think what's really important and what I, you know, every person who has reached out to me, I have deeply appreciated the outreach and I feel that there is a different type of understanding that has taken place about what is necessary and a different type of commitment that has taken place. And I also want to say that I think all of this has happened. I mean, like black men and women have been dying at the hands of police and getting pressed for it on the regular for the last several years. But George Floyd was murdered in the midst of a pandemic when black people were already suffering disproportionately, where people already had a little bit more time on their hands. This pandemic isn't over. So I think actually this has been one of the, you know, people sometimes um, bristle, everything happens for a reason because there's some really bad stuff that happens. And this happening right now, I think has created an opportunity for people to get into better habits about combating racism and to not just be not racist, but to be actively anti-racist. Before, America did the work of racism for you. You didn't have to do anything. You could just be someone who um, donated to Color of Change or supported the candidacy of a black or brown person um, running for office. And you could do those things and not recognize and see the racism that in other activities and microaggressions and just living with others and in community come up. But now I think people are recognizing that it's not enough to just make those donations. It's not enough to just support and voice. And it's actually important for everyone to do daily work to combat themselves of the interpersonal racism that contributes to the structural racism too. I want to talk a little bit about um, personal narratives and families. So here, just my own, I'll start with my own and then I'm inviting you all to, to share what you're comfortable sharing. Um, Because if we're going to get to that vision of sustainability, our, our personal narratives and our personal memories shape our politics and our identities more than anyone is willing to give credit for. We all, as human beings, like to think that our beliefs and our morals are like detachable. It's a commitment to something bigger that's separate from us. And nobody, a lot of people will be able to say about others, you came to that conclusion because of that experience, but are, are very unwilling to interrogate that about themselves. So what if we all admit that we are the products of our personal and collective memories and that that's where the work oftentimes has to take place? You have a gap in your own personal or in your collective memory that's therefore inhibiting your ability to, to acquire that story. I feel like a little bit of a poster child of white American Judaism. Um, I'll say that um, I'm publicly on my own podcast. I'm a fourth generation American all sides. All four of my grandparents were born in America. All four Eastern European Jewish immigrants at the turn of the 20th century. And our family story is the story of American Jewish immigrants rising through to become to the upper middle class using the force of uh, World War II. Actually, my grandfather fought on the battlefields of France and was wounded in the Battle of Metz in World War II, uh, came back with a Purple Heart, started a small business, you know, in New Jersey, and ultimately, you know, creates the conditions for kids who go on to essentially enjoy the benefits and the privileges of a certain type of, of white, uh, white American Jewish experience. I don't think, as you said, I don't think any of anyone of that generation did, quote unquote, did wrong. I think they rode a certain wave. 
I think part of the challenge, though, is that for folks like me and my and peers, the work that might have to happen to engage that whole class of American Jews, we'll come back to I mean, class is a bit of a piece of the story also, the work that has to happen to engage that whole class of American Jews requires a kind of unmaking of a set of choices that we as American Jews have seen as essential to that type of social climbing, where we choose to live, uh, what kind of schools we send our kids to, uh, the whole very Jewish day school industry um, re- receives a spike. This is the work of my colleague Rivka Press-Schwartz, who's been writing about this a lot, gets a spike as a result of white flight. They're inseparable from one another. So I'm curious for you to share a little bit about your own personal background, both so that our listeners can have a sense of the diversity of the American Jewish narratives that are in our American Jewish community, but also so that we can start tackling what does it look like for folks to to use our own personal stories as a means of trying to excavate what we're going to have to give up and change, including of our own quote-unquote successes here in America, in order to build a more equitable and, and inclusive Jewish community. Yeah, so for me, I grew up in, in uh, Muncie, New York, um, which is just 40 minutes north of New York City, if you haven't heard of it. It's one of the larger Jewish communities in the world. Um, in my background, you know, I grew up knowing that my ancestors were slaves in America, and I also grew up knowing that um, racism existed firsthand. Um, there was also just so many incredible humans in Muncie that some of my my parents' closest friends are white Ashkenazi Orthodox Jews who are in a 20-minute walking distance from them in Shul. But, you know, my father's side of the family, he was raised somewhat secular Jewish. His great-grandfather came also during the turn of the 20th century, around 1905. He fled, like, Russian pogroms and... Um, came to America, and that's and they're third, fourth generation American um, on my father's side, and then my mother's side on the patrilineal line. Uh, my grandfather, Curtis Robertson, he was you know born a, a black orphan, not with his family, not connected. His grandfather's, my grandfather's great great grandmother, Rachel Hill and Charles Magruder, were slaves in Sawyerville, Alabama, um, in the early 1820s. And Charles Magruder was was a stud. He was a he was a breeder. He actually has thousands of children and great grand descendants um, with the name Magruder. Those, those are all my relatives. And simultaneously, on my mother's mother's side, they uh, Nicholas Gibbs was my ancestor, who was one of the founders of America. He fought in the American Revolutionary War. Um, like I have my sons and daughters of the American Revolutionary War like membership ID number from Nicholas Gibbs. And, um, yeah, growing up in Muncie, knowing that I'm a Sons of the American Revolutionary War, I didn't know anybody else like that. I still, I'm still kind of looking to meet other Jews who might be, have that identity, or even Jews of color or people of color who share, um, share in that experience. You know, the fact that my mother, I mean, really, you know, the story of her growing up biracial in Hyde Park, which was a predominantly a Jewish community, um, I think she was connected to Judaism in a deep way. Um, and so in terms of Growing up with these different identities, I've always felt, and I still do, that like my ancestors have sent me, like my my religious ancestors from the shuttle, uh, you know, and from from the 18th and 17th century, and and you know, Eastern Europe and Russia. I still, I do, I feel like they also fought for this America, and I also realize that somehow my my you know my my great 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 grandfather um, was fighting for a different kind of freedom, while my other great 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 grandfather was a slave and was also fighting for a completely different kind of freedom. And I think I just grew up always knowing that there were so many different versions of America and just being so clear that, you know, 
I would get questions, you know, growing up, I would get questions straight up like, oh, is that your nanny? Are you adopted? Oh, so is your, is your mom Ethiopian? Like, you know, things like that. And every time it was a, it hurt every time. It, so it's just so clear. And I think that like one of the experiences that I'm having, and you were mentioning this about just kind of um, the Jewish community, how do we, how do we activate the Jewish community? And I think like, what role does the Jewish community see as it comes to race? I'll say as somebody who was born and raised in Muncie, New York, there are plenty of people who are, who are quote unquote woke um, uh, as it relates to racial justice, but there are also plenty of people who just simply didn't care. It's not on their radar. Um, and you were pointing out like when, when people have that fatigue and when the news just hits them too much and, and where things start to reopen and where, where all the things, and we just were, yeah. you know, Jimmy, you were pointing this out where people are less distracted or yeah. more distracted rather. Like that's where I feel, will people still care? Anyway, just that idea. I feel sent by my ancestors, all of them, the Jewish ones, the non-Jewish ones. I feel like they sent this generation for all of us to mend these, these wounds of our, our history and our, our, our America's past. We're here. We're here. That is so powerful, Rabbi, that like we were sent here. Like we are here now because our ancestors sent us. Um, I am from the South. I am born and raised in South Carolina, parents from North Carolina and South Carolina, not raised Jewish, but raised on the heels of the civil rights movement. My older siblings are much older than I am. They went to, they had an entirely different experience growing up than I did. Going to high schools that, you know, had been segregated years before, right? They came and were students. For me, growing up in the South, like, that is home. I have always seen the beauty and the promise of the South. And it strikes me as interesting. I actually also happen to have a political analysis that the South is how we rise again. Like, you know, growing up, you heard the South will rise again all the time from racists. And they meant that they would rise again to, to again, um, subjugate Black folks, right? That was a common refrain, a common story, a common narrative that we heard all the time. It was called the War of Northern Aggression. As when I learned about it as a kid, the KKK walked down my street in Georgetown, South Carolina, as a young child, which is obviously, you know, not as much as the KKK walking through streets regularly in the 70s. Like, I, you know, I, I did get the benefit of being a bit removed from um, visible and just abject racism. And that experience has informed everything about what I've become as an adult, including Jewish. As a child, I remember being fascinated by the white folks in the civil rights movement. And, you know, 30 years later, I appreciate that knowledge and that experience. And I'm like, but you know what? It's not enough to rest on the laurels of the white folks and the white Jews who participated in the civil rights movement. There's a new movement now, and we need the Jewish community present for this one, too. Um, we need them to be visible up front and at our side, you know, for the movement for Black lives and for real racial equality. I think that um, for me, in addition, you know, it's funny you're talking about Dr. Schwartz's work and sort of like the day school complex. I approach that in a, from a completely different orientation, because for me, the privilege that I'm able to experience and make possible for my kids to go to Jewish day school is because I want their Jewishness to be unassailable. It has to be. It's not a matter of if they encounter racism within Jewish community. It's a matter of when. And at that moment, I want them to be able to have 
every bit of ammunition at their side and at their back to have it not be questioned. And so giving them a day school education is a piece of that foundation, is a piece of their arsenal, is a piece of that toolbox that I know they will need because we haven't done the work yet of transforming the Jewish community. That last point is so powerful because it you have this such a weird story of the rise of Jewish day schools, especially in the late 60s, which are simultaneously connected to white flight. I, my kids go to a, a Jewish day school in Riverdale, and I remember going to uh, an event a few years ago to where they celebrated, you know, 50 years of the school, and it described that the school was founded as a result of three Jewish day schools in Riverdale coming together, one of which was moving from the Grand Concourse, and they just pretended like that there was no political context for why it happened to be that that school was leaving the Grand Concourse. It's so clearly part of that story. Uh, there's also, I mean, the reason why the Russian consulate housing is in Riverdale is because the Jewish community in Riverdale protested against um, uh, against building of a housing project and got the Russian consulate instead. So you, you know it's part of the story, and at the same time, the the rise of Jewish day schools is also connected to a modeling of Jewish identity after black power and black identity in the late sixties. That's Mark Dollinger's work. So there, the, like on one hand, this is a, a conversation that is like quote unquote against black folks. And it's also so deeply in dialogue and in many ways modeled after the black experience. And I, I don't know, you know, part of Isaiah, you said this, um, you said this when you wrote a piece for JTA a couple days ago as well. You said, I want every community to sign on to have educational campaigns around racial equality and racial awareness and racial sensitivity so that we can find a bridge to understanding and perspectives through history, through knowledge of the past, and so that we could better create a stronger, healthier bridge for the future. So that's some of the work, at least, maybe even as a prerequisite for keeping people in the game of racial justice is just a, creating a culture of introspection. If you are a part, you are a part of this and you are accountable to this. Um, and you can't avoid it. And that using that kind of education, what else do you want to see happen, Isaiah? Like, what does that educational work look like? I think that, you know, specifically also just recognizing that now because more people are listening, they're waiting, they're more engaged than ever. But I think a lot of people feel stuck. I think a lot of people don't actually know how to engage in this discussion. I'll say personally that from all the people who've reached out to me over the last week, which is sweet, like a part of me is like, I don't know how I'm supposed like. I, I want to talk to you. I want to be in a relationship with you, but, but you're coming to me to, to what? To reach out. But there's clearly something more that people, there's like a second step that people aren't engaging with. I think all the statements, as beautiful as some of them are, without action connected to that, what are we really trying to do? I mean, if there's just a statement without action, it's just standing by. Um, and so I think like what I mentioned, um, as you were quoting from the JTA article, like, it's really going back to that, that rabbinic truth that the Talmud Gadol Shemavi Ladei Maisa, this idea that, that we must study, we, not, we must engage in learning. And I think Shalom Hartman knows this pretty well um, in, in the work that you've been doing. But just the, this idea that we must engage structurally in, a, in the discussion and in, in conversation and in learning. And, and so, you know, I do, I do think that there are a few, few first things. One, people really do need to make a choice. The people who are stuck they need to make a choice to join the conversation. I think that that's just a start. It's scary. It might feel intense, but you need to join the conversation. And there's, you know, there's nothing that this moment needs more than for all of us to find a way of doing that. And we do need to be careful. You need to learn who you're talking to. You need to know how to code switch based on the audience. What you might want to say to somebody on the streets as you're walking side by side around this issue might not be the same if I was in a, like a shtiblach or like a small shul in Wednesday, New York, 
or anything in between. I also think like a, another point is like listening, like these pieces I think will bring us to the actual curriculum. But I do think joining the conversation and making that choice, listening with humility, like truly being humble, doing tshuva. And it's not tshuva maybe for what you've done, but we are inheritors. Mm-hmm. We're Americans. We have a passport. We're Americans. We're, we're inheritors of this mess. It's messy. It hurts. But we need, to, we need to do tshuva. We need to listen with humility. And I think that's a part of our puzzle that we maybe are not thinking about as much as we, you know, and a tip there is like, if you're listening, scrolling and and uh, viewing process is just in, in a vacuum, is that really truly listening to, to the different things that I think people are looking for? Um, and then three is like a back that statement. It's like, don't just stand there, do something. I think we have to figure out as communities and it's tailor-made. It is because it's, it's, it is complicated to try to help people shift their consciousness of, like you were saying, you know, how they're raised, their entire experience of their upbringing. It's not something that is one size fits all. Identity is complex. And in terms of not just sitting there and doing something, we must show up. That's a part of the Jewish legacy is, is being in a place when you know you need to stand up and stand up for what is right and stand up for what is just. Um, so and then it comes, you know, and then, and then I think from those principles, just to start, like those three, if we could root anything that we're doing in those three, then from there, the education, like, yeah, I mean, it looks different again for every institution, but I think it's like, how do we educate our children? Like for me, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll just share like briefly as we speak about the Jewish day school system, like I went to a Haredi school, like I had side locks until I was 10 years old. I had a little boy in second grade lean over to me and say to me, I'm not Jewish because my mom is black. And I believed him. And I, I was, I was totally scared by that. And, and, Someone told him that. Someone told that little boy. He inherited that idea from someone very close to him. And that person inherited the idea from someone close to them. And so the idea of stepping into this conversation, educating ourselves, it's also contextualizing our own experience, who we are. So it, it includes learning your history. If you're Jewish, learn your Jewish history. If you're not Jewish, learn your history. Like Learn where you come from. Learn your past. Because how can you contextualize this whole story if it's not adjacent to your story, if you don't see, and I know Dr. King has the line, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. I know uh, James Baldwin has a similar line that you are inextricably connected and that anything that happens to some of the victim is also you. But, but we can't do that if we're so disconnected, right? I'm, as a millennial, people like to rip on millennials that we're so disconnected from the past. We're not paying attention. I call myself a millennial traditionalist. I care about, just so, I mean, it's true. We need to care more about our past, we need, but our story, how could I engage in this in a real way if I don't even know my, my story? I, don't, I can't make sense of that. So I think of the education process is really like getting deep in all of, and then we need to learn black history. Like maybe a tip is like, don't call a Jew of color asking them to tell your story per se, unless you have a relationship and it makes sense and it's in a context for the sake of the greater good. Like, but you could do that if you have a relationship, but also like maybe Google black history and you'll like, <laughs> I don't know, like how long, like maybe like try that out and, and start there. I, yeah. I've been invited to conferences where people are asking us questions. They brought us, they invite us in when we're, we're all published online. Like, you know, so I, I, these, this conversation, like, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Like what we're doing now is essential because we're lifting our voice for the sake of the greater good. But when it comes to our individual work, we need to figure out that balance. It's attention. And we, we want to be wary of tokenizing people. But I think that that like what people are doing, like that work 
is twofold. And I think it's really important for, for people to under, like my, inter, my understanding is that there's interpersonal racism. You know, that's Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper in Central Park last week and there's structural racism. And we need Jews to be doing the work in both of those categories. There needs to be like, we need to have Jews reading books, having conversations, working through their own journey to anti-racist with other white people on a regular basis that needs to be happening because that actually does help to shift systems. And then there actually needs to be work of the Jewish community on system stuff, right? Fixing both the Jewish community, making sure that there are Jews of color in positions of leadership and visibility in Jewish institutions, making sure that Jewish people of color led organizations are getting the resources and the attention and the visibility that other institutions get. So there's like a systemic piece of the Jewish community that we need to address. And then there's Jews who need to be involved in the systemic change of America. We have a moral clarity on exactly this. And I feel like we've lost our way. But now there's a chance for us to get back on that path. You have basically three agendas that you listed out there. One is around education and interpersonal. Got it. Then you have a second agenda, which is around changing the nature of how our communities operate with respect to race and the whole internal agenda of Jews of color. I want to, I want to come back to that in a second. And then the third, as you said, is getting Jews involved with the larger work around transforming America in which racial injustice is a piece of that work. And you, you have obviously done that with uh, your whole career, Jenna, around a whole bunch of issues around voter suppression, uh, decarceration, uh, police, etc., um, defunding police, etc. Let's talk about the Jewish community, uh, because there has been really, I mean, it's only only loudly and public. I'm sure this work has been going on for decades, right? I know Gary Tobin's first research that produced Bechol Hashon is decades old now, but it's really been like the last three, four years with the rise of the Jewish, Jews of Color Field Building Initiative and, and Amud and a whole bunch of other initiatives that are actually putting this on the agenda. There was this eruption around the demography question. It doesn't matter really morally whether Jews of color are 6%, 8%, 10%, 12% of the Jewish community. It doesn't change the nature of obligation that you have towards people in your community who are not seen and taken seriously. But there is an explosion around, uh, a mini explosion, it's Jewish media can be called a major space, um, around the question of who are Jews of color, how do they get counted, and how do their resources get provided. I guess I want to know, how do organizations who have not been leaders in this work, and I, I say this about my own organization, how do we get involved in this work without then taking up the space of the people who are doing the work? And, you know, on one hand, the field building, like you, you don't want as the objective of field building that you then create more organizations led by Jews of color exclusively for Jews of color or exclusively around race. That's the same trap that feminism was in for decades of creating women leaders for women organizations, which doesn't actually and, change but, feminism. But, but those groups are still necessary. I would like, right, right. I, I would just want to make sure that, like, like I'm fully committed to like multiracial Jewish community and living that and being that and recognizing that there needs to be like space and an affinity space for our various, you know, subcommittees of the Jewish community. So I just want to like a thousand percent. I don't want to be. On, I certainly want to be on the record dis disputing with that. <laughs> I just want to ask, like, the work is not symbolic and it's not token. It's not having a, you know, a token, uh, 
Jew of color who's a board member, or in our case, a token Jew of color who's on our research, our research staff who's focusing exclusively on issues of Jews of color. But how do organizations simultaneously do that work and also get out of the way and not be viewed, especially right now, as being opportunistic? Because I'll tell you very candidly, and I can say this to, to our listeners, we're looking at our own organization and saying, where have we been complicit? Where have we fallen short? And I also don't want to start now taking up space in a conversation that doesn't belong, that quote unquote doesn't belong to us. Well, I don't think you have to take up space in the conversation. I can think you can take up space in the gallery, listening to the conversation and like bringing in the perspectives of Jews of color. I think Alana Kaufman at the Field Building Initiative, you know, part of their charge is actually education, right? Is speaking to and being sort of that bridge, that builder and playing that role for the larger Jewish community. So it doesn't fall on the individual genas and the individual Isaiahs that we can actually deliver that in a strategic and um, efficient way to the institutions who are making decisions. I think that it is not enough to just have, like you said, have the token Jew of color, JOC on the board or on the staff. And in fact, that can be a setup for that Jew of color on staff or on the board, because not all majority white spaces are good spaces and pleasant spaces for JOCs to be in. So there needs to be work done by the institution to become an anti-racist place and space so that when you bring those Jews of color into the fold, they can actually be their full selves, bring their voice and be able to actually shape the conversation, the debate and the action. If they come on board and there isn't that space and there isn't that community agreement among everyone who's present, then they do become token. They do become marginalized and the benefit of their presence is negated. For decades, Jewish leaders from across North America have traveled to Mechon Hartman in Israel to learn alongside inspiring faculty and meet old and new friends in the warmth of the Jerusalem summer. This year, we won't be able to gather in Jerusalem, but we can still gather. And this summer, we are opening the doors of our Bet Midrash and inviting everyone inside. All Together Now, Jewish Ideas for This Moment is a month-long virtual celebration of ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. Join hundreds of Jewish leaders online between June 29th and July 23rd as over 50 of our scholars from Israel and North America address the moral and theological questions facing us in this moment. For more information and to register free of charge, go to bit.ly slash Hartman Summer. I'm curious what have been some bright spots for you of where you've seen um you know, it's a hard moment right now, I know, to be optimistic, to feel like things are moving in the right direction. But if there are bright spots that you've seen of places or communities that you've been in, in the Jewish community, uh, where you've seen the possibility of real allyship, um, where you've seen the possibility of organizations undergo that kind of transformation, where you've seen some sort of culture change, it might be useful to be able to hold that up as, as a standard or a benchmark uh, for us to be able to think about. I know that often, you know, I've heard this a few times that when it comes to the social pertinent issues of our generation, whether it's LGBTQ inclusion or racial equity, uh, social equity as a whole, I've heard people say that almost it's, it's a fight for millennials or Gen Xers and that the baby boomers, so to speak, are, are already set in how they think about these issues and are not um, shifting their outlook or perspective. And, and I, I try to push back um, against that statement and that idea. I think that like the Jewish community largely, it's true. Um, 
you know, I'm 31 years old. My family has been around for a while. Like this is not just an opportunistic moment for me to share my story. My story has been my story my whole life. And like, it's true that there is a moment now, but like Gina said, like taking up space, like how we are, our methods, our approaches is um, the piece of the puzzle. And in terms of like, who is a Jew? Who is a Jew of color? How do we count people? How do we, you know, those voices that's, you know, we're in Sefer Bamidbar of the Torah, the Torah readings. Mm -hmm. Like we are living that that is the that is the reality in general when anyone is bold enough to try to count people um and i think i think you're right in saying you to that it's not a question of that it's the moral choices that we make um so for me like jewish institutional landscapes and each of us again i think it is tailor-made to institutions based on the context of their institution they need they need help they need guidance they need consultants to some sometimes figure out from a systemic institutional level how to approach that for each organization but I do think just like simply put, like everything going on right now, like really give up the mic, give the mic to other people, amplify other voices so you can do the right work. Like give the mic to Jews of color, give the mic to other people of color. Like, like you're doing right now, Yehuda, like you have this platform and you know you have it and you're using it. And we all need to be thinking about, it. okay, I feel uncomfortable by that statement from that article and that's it or that article and it's messy and I want to stay away, but actually... What I need to do is figure out how to come close and do it in a way that's constructive from where me and my organization and where I'm coming from. But the idea, we really do need to give up our power in a way to, to actually see how we can create a healthier community. We need to give the mic. We need to hand the mic to other people. You know, for me, it, it's I'm in this sort of awkward position. I left Bin the Ark on May 28th and joined the board officially yesterday. So I'm like no longer a staff person, but now a board member. And I also, you know, as part of my work, actually had spent um, some of my last few weeks there looking at Bim the Ark's own racial equity journey. And, you know, I think what came through for me is that there's absolutely no progress without, like, intentional commitment. And we, and, and as an organization, Bim the Ark, you know, we're not there yet. Nobody is. It's America. We're all still working. Like, Black folks are still working to like <laughs> rid ourselves of internalized white supremacy. Like it's not something that you can just, you know, this United States is not, you know, this culture or a box that you can just step out of. We're all steeping in it. And what I learned is that the explicit commitment that Ben the Ark made several years ago to, to be on a path and be on a journey is part of how I'm so proud of the work that they've done. And one thing that I think is really, um, that I'll just point to, because I'm personally excited about and had a major hand in it is our own upcoming project Shamash, which is a leadership development program. That's going to be based in the California East Bay. And it's going to have three pillars to it. It's going to have JOC led and JOC oriented community programming for the Jewish color community in the East Bay and their families. It's going to have identification and cultivation work for Jews of color who want to either work in or lead as lay leaders for Jewish institutions. And it's going to have a component of work with institutions to make sure that they actually are going to be able to become places where Jews of color can work and thrive and bring their fullest contributions. So that's coming soon. And I think that that's going to be able to be a tremendous model for transforming the Jewish community and having us really become and look like the Jews that we are. 
In my own journey to try to understand these issues, one of the places that I have weirdly learned the most from is uh, is through a series of conversations over the past 10 years with American Muslims. In fact, in some ways, it took a conversation outside of my own community to understand the dynamics that were happening inside my own community, or at least to get me to start paying attention. And in particular, to get a greater understanding of the racial diversity in American Islam and uh, the class diversity in American Islam, and to notice that what are portrayed in part after 9-11, when American Muslims go from being a, a, a well-liked minority group in America to being a despised minority group in America, you have this incredible racial divide where the socially climbing immigrant population of American Muslims, mostly from South Asia, are now finding themselves in the bottom of the heel of American society, and African-American Muslims who never actually socially climbed said, welcome back. And and it was in, in a lot of experiences in teaching and learning with this uh, folks that I, I became a- acquainted with the language of Afro-pessimism, done a lot of reading over the last couple of years, Frank Wilderson and Saidia Hartman and a whole bunch of other theorists on on the impossibility of redemption. And what's really powerful about just listening to to both of you, and I um, I don't you know you're not representative, you don't have to represent anybody but yourselves, um, none of us do, <laughs> is to hear the language of Judeo-optimism, uh, of some notion, uh, like that's the, in some ways there is, Afro-pessimism is not a universal idea, but it is it is a disbelief in, in redemption because it roots the notion of blackness as an irredeemable category. Once it's created by whiteness, it's irredeemable. So stop thinking about the possibility of redemption. And I'm just taken by, it's very hard for me to wrap my head around that as a Jew. It's hard. It's actually think for another time, Judeo pessimism is what's killing Zionism. The belief that the, the belief of the inability of the Jewish people to ever reconcile with the family of nations. So screw it. We'll just do whatever that, whatever we need to do for our own survival. So I can't, I can't live with that as a Jew. And I'm just really, it's so powerful to hear both of you talk about what is essentially a Judeo optimistic view of what might be possible for, for Jews in America, for African Americans in America, for Jews of color in America, and for the Jewish community more broadly. So last thing, tell us something. It could be a piece of Torah, something you've shared, some recommendations, something to read, something to look for, something to de- that we can that we can take with us going forward uh, and dedicate to the memory of um, of both George Floyd as well as the people who have been putting their bodies on the line. Uh, give us one last piece of inspiration to take with us. I'm going to make it quick and I'm going to say vote. Read your ballots. There's lots of amazing candidates at the local state level. Senate races that are really important. There's a lot of change that I think can be possible and can be made and we gotta, we gotta, we gotta vote. That's still a piece of what's, I think, in play for 2020 universally. Yeah, I think in many ways, you know, the Torah, the Torah teaches and the Talmud says that 36 places, maybe 46 places, uh, where it says, low tono, low tafitzano, we shouldn't put pressure or um, make anyone feel out of place. And I think we have this moral mandate, the Jewish community, of who we are, um, we know we know that people fall out of place and we know that we have this constant, we need the 36 and 46 reminders. We need to be reminded through everything that we're engaging in. And, you know, the way I was raised in a mixed race Chabad family in Muncie, New York, like Mashiach and redemption was very, very close to my life. It was a living reality. My parents, myself, it is a part of what we believe in. And there's no question that we believe as a family and hopefully all of us, like you're hinting to you and like you're saying is that if redemption doesn't include people of color and all marginalized and all the whole world, all humans, it's not, it's not Mashiach. Mashiach is meant to be something where no one is left out, especially because of the color of their skin. And I think the Jewish community, we know better than like Sinach this idea of hatred, baseless hatred for what, for something external, like what? So I think that's something that 
uh, we play a huge voice in this. We are, we are, in fact, as a nation, we are, we are actually experts in inclusion, and, and we, are ex- we are meant to be. We are experts in knowing what it means to stand for those who don't have a voice. I really appreciate it for both of you. You know, when in Jewish tradition you say, I believe and I pray in the coming of the Messiah, though he may tarry, that's supposed to remind you that it's not supposed to happen tomorrow and you're supposed to distrust false messiahs, but it should make you cry. The waiting should make you cry um, and it should make you angry. And um, I can't thank you both enough. Uh, I know it's not easy to talk about anything that sounds theoretical today. None of this is theoretical. These are our lives and our days. And um, we pray together, really together, that our Judaism, our people, our America uh, can be redeemed. So I want to thank you. Thanks to all of you for listening to our show this week. Special thanks to Isaiah Rothstein and Gina Green for, for being in conversation with me today. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We really want to know what you think about the show. You can write us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. For weeks, I've been signing off by telling people to stay safe, stay healthy. This week, staying safe and staying healthy takes on a new urgency. Stay angry, um, stay committed. Uh, See you next week, and thanks for listening.